Section 12 of Toto's Merry Winter by Laura E. Richards. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jude Summers. Chapter 11 The Three Remarks. The apples and nuts went round again and again, and for a few minutes nothing was heard save the cracking of shells and the gnawing of sharp white teeth. At length, the parrot said meditatively, that was a very stupid cow, though. Are all cows as stupid as that? Well, I don't think they are what you would call brilliant as a rule, Toto admitted. But they are generally good, and that is better. <clears throat> Possibly, said Miss Mary dryly. That is probably why we have no cows in Central Africa. Our animals being all, without exception, clever and good, there is really no place for creatures of the sort you describe. How about the bogum, Miss Mary? asked the raccoon slyly, with a wink at Toto. The parrot ruffled up her feathers and was about to make a sharp reply, but suddenly, remembering the raccoon's brave defense of her an hour before, she smoothed her plumage again and replied gently, I confess that I forgot the bogum coon. It is indeed a treacherous and a wicked creature a dark blot on the golden roll of African animals. She paused and sighed, then added, as if to change the subject, But come, is it too late to have another story? If not, I have a short one in mind, which I will tell you, if you wish. All assented joyfully, and Miss Mary, without more delay, related the story of The Three Remarks. There was once a princess, the most beautiful princess that ever was seen. Her hair was black and soft as the raven's wing. Here the crow blinked and stood on one leg and plumed himself, evidently highly flattered by the illusion. Her eyes were like stars dropped in a pool of clear water, and her speech was like the first tinkling cascade of the baby Nile. She was also wise, graceful, and gentle, so that one would have thought she must be the happiest princess in the world. But alas, there was one terrible drawback to her happiness. She could only make three remarks. No one knew whether it was the fault of her nurse, or a peculiarity born with her, but the sad fact remained, no matter what was said to her, she could only reply in one of three phrases. The first was, What is the price of butter? The second, has your grandmother sold her mangle yet? And the third, with all my heart. You may well imagine what a misfortune this was to a young and lively princess. How could she join in the sports and dances of the noble youths and maidens of the court? She could not always be silent, neither could she always say, with all my heart, though this was her favorite phrase, and she used it whenever she possibly could and it was not at all pleasant when some gallant knight asked her whether she would rather play croquet or Aunt Sally, to be obliged to reply, What is the price of butter? On certain occasions, however, the princess actually found her infirmity of service to her. She could always put an end suddenly to any conversation that did not please her, by interposing with her first or second remark. And they were also of very great assistance to her when, as happened nearly every day, she received an offer of marriage. Emperors, kings, princes, dukes, earls, marquises, viscounts, baronets, and many other lofty personages 
knelt at her feet, and offered her their hands, hearts, and other possessions of greater or less value. But for all her suitors, the princess had but one answer. Fixing her deep, radiant eyes on them, she would reply with thrilling earnestness, "'Has your grandmother sold her mangle yet?' And this always impressed the suitors so deeply that they retired weeping to a neighboring monastery, where they hung up their armor in the chapel, and taking the vows, passed the remainder of their lives mostly in flogging themselves, wearing hair-shirts, and putting dry toast-crumbs in their beds. Now, when the king found that all his best nobles were turning into monks, he was greatly displeased, and said to the princess, "'My daughter, it is high time that all this nonsense came to an end. The next time a respectable person asks you to marry him, you will say, "'With all my heart,' or I will know the reason why. But the princess could not endure, for she had never yet seen a man she was willing to marry. Nevertheless, she feared her father's anger, for she knew that he always kept his word. So that very night she slipped down the back stairs of the palace, opened the back door, and ran away out into the wide world. She wandered for many days over mountain and moor, through fen and through forest, until she came to a fair city. Here all the bells were ringing, and the people shouting and flinging caps into the air, for their old king was dead, and they were just about to crown a new one. The new king was a stranger, who had come to town only the day before, but as soon as he heard of the old monarch's death, he told the people that he was a king himself, and as he happened to be without a kingdom at the moment, he would be quite willing to rule over them. The people joyfully assented, for the late king had left no heir, and now all the preparations had been completed. The crown had been polished up, and a new tip put on the scepter, as the old king had quite spoiled it by poking the fire with it for upwards of forty years. When the people saw the beautiful princess, they welcomed her with many bows, and insisted on leading her before the new king. "'Who knows but that they may be related?' said everybody. "'They both came from the same direction.' and both are strangers. Accordingly, the princess was led to the market-place, where the king was sitting in royal state. He had a fat, red, shining face, and did not look like the kings whom she had been in the habit of seeing. But nevertheless, the princess made a graceful curtsy, and then waited to hear what he would say. The new king seemed rather embarrassed when he saw that it was a princess who appeared before him, but he smiled graciously and said, in a smooth, oily voice, "'I trust your highness is quite well, and how did your highness leave your ma and pa?' At these words the princess raised her head and looked fixedly at the red-faced king. Then she replied, with scornful distinctiveness, "'What is the price of butter?' At these words an alarming change came over the king's face. The red faded from it and left it a livid green. His teeth chattered, his eyes stared and rolled in their sockets, while the scepter dropped from his trembling hand and fell at the princess's feet. For the truth was, this was no king at all, but a retired butterman, who had laid by a little money at his trade and had thought of setting up a public house. But chancing to pass through this city at the very time they were looking for a king, it struck him that he might just as well fill the vacant place as anyone else. 
no one had thought of his being an impostor. But when the princess fixed her clear eyes on him, and asked him that familiar question, which he had been in the habit of hearing many times a year for a great part of his life, the guilty butterman thought himself detected, and shook in his guilty shoes. Hastily descending from his throne, he beckoned the princess into a side-chamber, and closing the door, besought her in moving terms not to betray him. "'Ere,' he said, "'is a bag of rubies as big as pigeon's eggs. There are six thousand of them, and I only beg your highness to accept them as a slight token of my esteem, if your highness will kindly consent to spare a respectable tradesman the disgrace of being exposed. The princess reflected, and came to the conclusion that, after all, a butterman might make as good a king as anyone else. So she took the rubies, with a gracious little nod, and departed, while all the people shouted, Hooray! and followed her, waving their hats and kerchiefs to the gates of the city. With her bag of rubies over her shoulder, the fair princess now pursued her journey, and fared forward over heath and hill, through brake and through briar. After several days she came to a deep forest, which she entered without hesitation, for she knew no fear. She had not gone a hundred paces under the arching limes, when she was met by a band of robbers, who stopped her, and asked her what she did in their forest, and what she carried in her bag. They were fierce, black-bearded men, armed to the teeth with daggers, cutlasses, pistols, dirks, hangers, blunderbusses, and other defensive weapons. But the princess gazed calmly on them, and said haughtily, "'Has your grandmother sold her mangle yet?' The effect was magical. The robbers started back in dismay, crying, "'The countersign!' Then they hastily lowered their weapons, and assuming attitudes of abject humility, besought the princess graciously to accompany them to their master's presence. With a lofty gesture she signified assent, and the cringing, trembling bandits led her on through the forest till they reached an open glade, into which the sunbeams glanced right merrily. Here, under a broad oak tree which stood in the centre of the glade, reclined a man of gigantic stature and commanding mien, with a whole armory of weapons displayed upon his person. Hastening to their chief, the robbers conveyed to him, in agitated whispers, the circumstance of their meeting the princess, and of her unexpected reply to their questions. Hardly seeming to credit their statement, the gigantic chieftain sprang to his feet, and advancing towards the princess with a respectful reverence, begged her to repeat the remark which had so disturbed his men. With a royal air, and in clear and ringing tones, the princess repeated, "'Has your mother sold her mangle yet?' and gazed steadfastly at the robber chief. He turned deadly pale, and staggered against a tree, which alone prevented him from falling. "'It is true,' he gasped. "'We are undone. The enemy is without doubt close at hand, and all is over. Yet—' he added with more firmness, and with an appealing glance at the princess. Yet there may be one chance left for us. If this gracious lady will consent to go forward, instead of returning through the wood, we may yet escape with our lives. Noble princess! And here he and the whole band assumed attitudes of supplication. Consider, I pray you, whether it would really add to your happiness to betray to the advancing army a few poor foresters, who earn their bread by the sweat of their brow. 
Here, he continued, hastily drawing something from a hole in the oak tree, here is a bag containing ten thousand sapphires, each as large as a pullet's egg. If you will graciously deign to accept them, and to pursue your journey in the direction I shall indicate, the Red Chief of the Rusty Wanger will be your slave forever. The princess, who of course knew that there was no army in the neighborhood, and who, moreover, did not in the least care which way she went, assented to the Red Chief's proposition, and taking the bag of sapphires, bowed her farewell to the grateful robbers, and followed their leader down a ferny path which led to the farther end of the forest. When they came to the open country, the robber chieftain took his leave of the princess, with profound bows and many protestations of devotion, and returned to his band, who were already preparing to plunge into the impenetrable thickets of the mid-forest. The princess, meantime, with her two bags of gems on her shoulders, fared forward with a light heart, by dale and by down, through moss and through meadow. By and by she came to a fair high palace, built all of marble and shining jasper, with smooth lawns about it, and sunny gardens of roses and gilly-flowers, from which the air blew so sweet that it was a pleasure to breathe it. The princess stood still for a moment to taste the sweetness of this air, and to look her fill at so fair a spot, and as she stood there it chanced that the palace gates opened, and the young king rode out with his court to go a-catching of night-hawks. Now, when the king saw a right fair princess standing alone at his palace gate, her rich garments dusty and travel-stained, and two heavy sacks hung upon her shoulders, he was filled with amazement, and leaping from his steed, like the gallant knight that he was, he besought her to tell him whence she came, and whither she was going, and in what way he might be of service to her. But the princess looked down at her little dusty shoes, and answered never a word, for she had seen at the first glance how fair and goodly a king this was, and she would not ask him the price of butter, nor whether his grandmother had sold her mangle yet. But she thought in her heart, Now I have never in all my life seen a man to whom I would so willingly say, With all my heart, if he should ask me to marry him. The king marveled much at her silence, and presently repeated his questions, adding, "'And what do you carry so carefully in those two sacks, which seem over-heavy for your delicate shoulders?' Still holding her eyes downcast, the princess took a ruby from one bag and a sapphire from the other, and in silence handed them to the king, for she willed that he should know she was no beggar, even though her shoes were dusty.' Thereat all the nobles were filled with amazement, for no such gems had ever been seen in that country. But the king looked steadfastly at the princess, and said, Rubies are fine, and sapphires are fair. But, maiden, if I could but see those eyes of yours, I warrant that the gems would look pale and dull beside them. At that the princess raised her clear dark eyes, and looked at the king and smiled and the glance of her eyes pierced straight to his heart, so that he fell on his knees and cried, Ah, sweet princess, now do I know that thou art the love for whom I have waited so long, and whom I have sought through so many lands. Give me thy white hand, and tell me, either by word or by sign, that thou wilt be my queen and my bride. And the princess, 
like a right royal maiden as she was, looked him straight in the eyes, and giving him her little white hand, answered bravely, With all my heart. End of section 12